Our text today is Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. This is the word of the Lord. While he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly grateful to be here today to study your word, to grow in your word as the family of God. And so, Lord, we ask that as we, as we hear this and as we study this, that you impress it upon our hearts and our minds and our mouths and that we may carry it everywhere to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. It is really good to be with you, church family. This is a sad and a tragic statistic, one you're probably aware of, but 50% of marriages in America end in divorce. And divorce equals the destruction of a family. It is the tearing apart of a group of people, and it is tragic in every single circumstance, whether it's believers or it's unbelievers. And this problem of breaking apart families has huge consequences. It has spiritual consequences. It has societal consequences. Data from 2022 shows that 18.5 million children are growing up without their fathers in America right now. 18.5 million fatherless children. That's tragic. This has a huge impact on culture, on society, and on the future. The LGBTQ plus minus dollar sign movement has actually declared war on the family. One video I watched the other day mentioned that they were there to destroy and change the idea of the family, to crush and break down the patriarchy. In 2020, the Black Lives Matter movement on their website, which has since been removed, claimed that one of their goals was to disrupt the Western-produced nuclear family structure. Church family, the family is under attack in real ways all around us. Families are falling apart. Things are a little bit of a mess, if you haven't noticed. But before we can take a look at this mess and the hope that we have, because we are hopeful people, we need to look at what Jesus says about families and says about the priorities that families must have. And you have to remember, as we've continued to work through Matthew, that our text today is coming on the back end of a whole bunch of conflict. These last handful of weeks, we've been looking at this conflict that, that Jesus has been involved in and in his responses to the Pharisees. Jesus has warned us about the only unforgivable sin. He's spoken to us about good and bad trees, about the, fr the fruit that each one of those produces. We even saw Jesus heal a demon-possessed man only to be told that he was Satan. And that's where we pick up. That's where we, we pick up this, this time of conflict. And in verse 46 it says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. And we don't have all the details. A lot of the times we don't have all the details. But we do know that Jesus is inside somewhere, probably a house, 
And, and, and he's speaking, and he's teaching, and he's engaging with folks, and we know that he has family members, bloodline family members, that are standing outside, and they want to speak to him. Now, we don't actually have a complete picture of what Jesus' family looks like at this moment. So we, we put it together by comparing the gospel narratives and, and the things that we know about the story, but we, we figure that this event's probably taking place long after Joseph has, Joseph has died, so this is most likely Jesus' mother and his brothers, that they're trying to speak to him, they're trying to get a hold of him. And they probably feel like they have a right to do this because they're his family, there's blood. Now, we don't know exactly what they think of Jesus, just like we don't know exactly what the Jews think of Jesus. But I think we can get a pretty decent idea. What we do know is that Jesus' family was concerned about him. In Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, it says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again. There's always a crowd. So that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. And similarly, in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he is to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. In fact... Suppose didn't even come to faith until after Jesus was died, died and was resurrected. So most likely his family is outside and they have serious concern for their brother, whether they, they think he's nutty or, or, or they're the worrisome, but they, they have concern. And, and they probably have concern because Jesus is stirring up trouble. If you remember, not too long ago we talked about the fact that Jesus said, I did not come here for peace but I came here with a sword. And we, we, we know that many times before we achieve peace, there has to be conflict. And Jesus' mere existence in the world brings conflict. So you can imagine that Jesus with his popularity, both good and bad, is probably raising flags with his family because there's cultural unrest. There's large crowds that are following him. Everybody's talking about Jesus. And so they believe, most likely, that because they are blood-related to Jesus, that they can come and get an audience with him. We need to speak with you. Kind of reminds me of those movies from the 80s and 90s. It's like some rock show, and the kids want to get behind the stage. And so you know, the camera pans over, and they're like down the aisle where the trucks go, and there's the big, burly security guard guy, and they're like, hey, we want to get in the back. And they're like, no, we're with the band. No, you're not. Go home, kids. They're the door. We're with the band. He's our brother. Let us in. This is Jesus' blood family. And they're, they're standing outside, and he's inside preaching, and he's with the crowd, and they call to him, and they expect to get in. And how does he respond? And it might not be exactly as you would expect him to respond. Verse 48, but he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? He asks somebody who's with him a question. And Jesus does this a lot. We, we, we see this interaction, the way Jesus uses questions to make points. He said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Can you imagine the confusion that could possibly be on this man's face? He'd be like, no, they're right outside. <laughs> I saw them with my own eyes. 
who is my mother and who are my brothers? Are they the ones banging on the door to be let in? Look at Jesus in 49.50. Stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This might not be the answer that they were expecting. It might actually not even be the answer that, that you were expecting. Especially when you think about the importance of families in God's economy. Here are my brothers and sisters, those who do my will. But there's something else that's implied here. There's something really big that is implied here. And it implies that if one doesn't do the will of Christ, that they are not his brother or sister or mother or family. That's pretty heavy. So here's, here's the, the, the big idea, the, the kind of the, the meat of these, these four short verses. It's that one's loyalty to Christ must come before their loyalty to their blood family. i say that again. Christians must love Jesus more and before than they love their blood relatives. Christians must love Jesus more than they love anything else in life. I was thinking about this yesterday, because we've had a, a pretty big zoo of a week, and so my prep and my writing actually was a lot later, but my prep was earlier, and I was chewing and thinking and praying, and, and what I thought about yesterday was, as faith goes, so goes the family. As faith goes, so goes the family. And we all know this to be true. Even if we haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about it, we know and we experience the spiritual decline that we see in America and in the West. I was actually saying to Kristen last night, I probably should spend more time studying the French Revolution and the Enlightenment. I'm reading some of Abraham Kuyper's, I'm reading his lectures on Calvinism. They're fantastic. You should totally read them written in 1898, delivered in 1898, and he's talking about, <laughs> he was talking about men wanting to become women and women wanting to become men in 1898, it, it, but as by proxy so, and French Revolution, all these things, that's kind of a segue. But we know that the West and America is in spiritual decline. We are at our lowest numbers as a country of reported belief in God. We're at our lowest numbers as a country as in church attendance. We have decreasing numbers of people who want to have children. We have decreasing numbers of people who want to get married. And if they do get married, people are getting married later and later. And not surprisingly, we are at our highest rate of divorce. Marriage is treated like a disposable item. There's whole systems that are built to capitalize on that. We're also seeing the highest rates of diagnosed mental health issues, the highest rates of crime, our highest rates of a lack of accountability. People don't even know how to do family because culture is trying to redefine family at every single level. We have gay mirage, we have the, the, the promotion of the childless lifestyle. I saw a bumper sticker we were driving two days ago or whenever, and it's like the Colorado family is a couple in their 30s, and a bunch of outdoorsy gear and their dog that is their, their child. And there was a sticker. And it was like a guy with a backpack and a hiking stick and a lady with a backpack and a hiking stick and the dog. We've even changed how we view what the family is. And what I believe is, based on my experience and what God's word says, is that the destruction of the family is due to a lack of faith in Jesus. 
And I believe, and I say this a lot here, that this is the center of our cultural problems, is a lack of a faith in Jesus. And we know that it's fruitless. And we see the fruitlessness of it. And it's a problem. And we all know here why it's a problem. It's a problem because of sin. Did you know that families have sin in them? I don't know if you knew that. Men sin, children sin, women, you also sin. Oh boy. Everybody sins. Even if you came from a family where your, your parents loved you and, and they never got divorced and there was no abuse and nobody ever really fought and there was no glaring issues, I grew up in a really wonderful house. And there was still sin. Why? He's just going to have this memorized by the time we're done. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Because sin exists everywhere, especially in families. Adam's fall impacts everything. Adam's fall impacts families. And if you don't believe me, you can see it. You can go and see it right outside. Jacob and Esau, which Garen just read. You can even go back farther. Cain and Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? This is at the very beginning. The very beginning we see this. There is nothing new under the sun. Families sin. Sin infects families, and it, 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 it changes the way we interact with each other or make demands on one another or guilt one another. You see, that is why a foundation in faith in Christ is critical for families to thrive and survive. I can give you a million negative examples. What about the ideal family? Maybe you look at me, you're, I mean, we, you're crazy, like normal. You say, my family was fine, my parents were good, I lacked nothing, nobody beat me. Even if you grew up in the ideal perfect family, your family still can't provide all your needs for you. You know that to be true. Our families can't provide us every single thing we need. I'm sure that you have met people that treat their spouse like they're their savior. The, the woman who, who puts her husband on the perfect pedestal. It's not real patriarchy. It's like this weird, I don't even know. I've seen it with men on the other side too. The man whose his wife is the queen of all queens. And I, I didn't know how to like articulate it in my manuscript, but I've all, bumper stickers are great. You can totally tell what people think through bumper stickers. <laughs> like, like the lady that's got like the license plate that says his queen, I've seen this. And then there's like bumper stickers that go around with it that she's the queen and he, he's the king. But it's like a savior complex. It's a savior complex that's, that's being built into the marriage, uh, venerating it above all else. And it looks, it can look from the outside, like, wow, look how, look how strong, how great that is. He's declaring her the perfect flower and capable of sin. That's not true. She's declaring him the perfect leader and capable of sin. That's not true. What about kids? Many families make kids their saviors. Do you know kids can sin too? If you, kids are like the perfect, the perfect proof that original sin exists because you don't have to teach your small children how to lie. You didn't have lying class one weekend. You're like, okay, now if you want the cookie, and mom told you you can't have the cookie, eat the cookie and then tell mom you didn't eat the cookie. Nobody, if you teach your kids to lie, that's bad parenting. We should talk. But your kids can't be your saviors, right? So some people try to relive their, their childhood through their children. 
They do this in sports or activities or, or maybe a college that they, their child has to go to or a career path their child has to follow because they're trying to like live some fantasy and dream through their kid that can't save either of them. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's a parent, a mother or father who says, my, kid, my kids are just my life. Above everything else, your kids should be really important in your life. Right? And so she's pushed out her husband or he's pushed out his wife and they're probably still married. She looks at him like the sperm donor for the kids and then she worships them or he, he looks at her as just something that provided him the kids and you know, can live in a backwards world. All kinds of things, right? But what happens when these things fail? What happens when, when the wife or the husband above leaves the other spouse or has an affair or is angry or, or, or isn't the, the, the piece of perfection, this elevated status of savior status that they can never actually achieve? What, ha- what happens when they die? Everyone's crushed. What happens to the parent that, that has venerated their children to the, st- to the status of savior and then the kids do something tragic? Or something happens to them. Or they don't talk to you. What happens then? You're crushed. See, we can impute so much on our families, and we can treat them like saviors, especially if our families appear to be really healthy. And we can do this because we say, well, we're related. Blood is thicker than water. Your families are really important. We're going to get to this. But they can't save us. Our families can't save us ever. Because they have sin in them like everything else in our lives. So, I know what you're thinking. Another Sunday morning pick-me-up from Pastor Craig. But when we understand the reality that our families can't save us, and, and, and at times they will let us down, and, and if they aren't redeemed, we know that culturally they'll fall apart. We know those things to be true. So what do we do? Because families stand at the center of God's creation. Last night we talked about the hope in creation, and we read all of Genesis 1 and all of Genesis 2. We talked about God is the creator of all of this, and because there is a creator that this has meaning, and it's really, really, really important. We're image bearers of God's and creators. And so one of the things we do this is through families, because it fulfills a commandment of God's, which was given before the fall. In Genesis 1, 27, 28, remember, before the fall, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He only created male and female. Just side note. But what did he say to the only male and female that he created? He said, be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion. He told them to go start a family. So families are the answer. It was, it was given to us before the fall. So there must be hope surrounding families. Can't all just be bad news. It's got to be hope surrounding families. And I've heard people say that they have hope in their family. We have hope in families. I do not but I believe there is hope for families, not hope in families. And it's an important distinction to have hope for the family, not hope in the family. God's commanded us to have a family, so how do we 
family? How do we deal with the sin and the difficulty that we know that will exist in families? And that's actually what Jesus is telling his blood family, the people that were listening to him, and us today. He's actually telling us about priorities. It really always comes back to this, doesn't it? Priorities. He's telling us who our priority must be, who the real family is. And, and once we understand that, only then, then can we go live and lead and participate well within our blood families here. Because Christ redeems everything, even the family. But without Christ, the family cannot be redeemed. And, and just think about that for a second. Without Jesus, the family cannot be redeemed, which is simple, and it should make total sense to you, because if the family is infected with sin, like everything else, and Christ is the only thing that can wash away sin and redeem anything from sin, then the only hope that the family has is in Christ. It's just that simple. Which means Jesus has to be the priority above all else. And that's what Jesus is telling his mother and his brothers and us. He's saying, hey, yeah, we're related, we're blood, but, but you can't be my brother and sister unless you believe in me. That your, your blood doesn't like, get you to that, the front of the line. I'm with the band. And this is powerful, and it's cutting, and it's heavy, and it's true, but it's also so incredibly hopeful. Because the same is true for us. We must love and adore and worship Christ above everything else. Everything. He has to be our highest priority because if we don't, then none of the other things work. We know this, that fathers aren't fathering and mothers aren't mothering and husbands aren't husbanding and wives aren't wiving. And it's not particularly going well. It really isn't. But there's so much hope. There really is. We know why, because without that foundation in Christ, you end up making something else your savior. You all are created to worship. That's why we have interests and desires and things that talk about us. That's why some people like, I'm trying to think of a sport I don't really like. Which, no, I, that's great. They're beautiful horses. Pardon? Yeah. Sport I don't really like. Some people like soccer. Like Ted Lasso helped me a little bit with soccer. And other people really like football, right? I don't really like either of them all that much. And I don't remember where I was going with it. Ah, make something else your savior. We have things that pull on us, right? These things that are interesting, and they're different. The things that Jason likes might be the things that are different than I like, but none of those things we should elevate to a status that it is our savior. Solomon and Ecclesiastes talk to us so much about putting our trust and our hope in worldly things or worldly people, things that cannot actually save us because only Jesus can save us. But I also think it's important for us to see what Jesus is not doing here, because it's really important for us. Jesus is not renouncing his family. He's not renouncing them because they don't believe in him. He's not turning away from them. He's not casting them off. He's telling them to truly be family they must believe in Him. It's actually an invitation. It's an invitation to them, and it's an invitation to us, and that's where the real hope lies. Because what Jesus is saying is that those who are in faith are His brothers and sisters. They are His family. And they are, if you look up the definition of family in the dictionary, one of the definitions is families are people who share a common ancestor. Families share a common ancestor. That's why we use the word family here. We are a family in church. We share a common ancestor. 
That is Christ, that is God. That's why we are a church family. Verse 50, again, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It's like all the hope, all the hope is wrapped up in that one sentence. Whoever is in faith in Christ, whoever does the will of Christ is a brother and sister. God, God, God just told you that if you are in faith, you are His family. I've been reading some things about Islam. That would be heresy to say in Islam, that you were family of God's. No other religious tradition ever has ever made the claim that you are family members with God. This should actually blow your mind, that the God of the universe wants you to be His family member, one who sinned against Him. He wants you to be His family member. He doesn't want you to be a slave. He doesn't want you to be His Christian robot. He wants you to be His brother and sister, His family. The perfect and holy God wants to be family with you. That is hope. That is the best news in the whole world. Just think about that. You are a sinner invited into the perfect family, not based on anything that you can do, just faith. And it wasn't just like this invitation to his mother and his brothers. It's a universal invitation. It, it, it's an invitation that, that when accepted, when accepted, you can never fall out of God's grace. Now, the Holy Spirit works in ways that only, we know that only God is in control of, and not everybody accepts this incredible offer. But it is available universally. Jesus is saying that anybody who is in faith in Him is cleansed of their sin, and that allows them, their justification allows them to be a family member of His. And what He's also reminding His mother and His brothers and us is they need saving from their sins. Just because they were blood-related to Jesus doesn't mean they don't need saving for their sins. One of the gentlemen from our sister church was over last night, and we were talking outside about the Roman Catholic Church and about the veneration of Mary. Mary still needed to be saved from her sins. That's what Jesus is reminding them and us. And in that is so much hope because Christ's salvation is hopeful by its, it, its very nature. The fact that we can be saved is hopeful by its very nature because salvation is hopeful. It is redemption. It is saving. And that's why everybody must first bend the knee to Christ before they can care and love their own families, or, or anything else for that matter. Because Christ teaches us how to confess. Christ teaches us how to forgive. Christ teaches us how to reconcile. I mean, think about it. If, if, how can you get married if you don't know what to look for in a spouse? How would you even figure out what to look for in a spouse? Maybe it's just feelings-based. Well, in a godless world, that's what happens, right? You're like, oh, I feel this way, so I'm going to act on this. It's all feelings. And then what happens when the feelings run out? I'm done. So why are you guys getting a divorce? I'm not in love with them anymore. What do you mean? Well, I just I don't feel it. Well, what do you mean? It's an action. It's, it's a verb. No, no, I don't, I don't feel it. I don't feel it, so we're done. Well, that's what happens if you live in a feeling-based word world. But what if, you're, what if you're a follower of Christ? How, how do you pick a spouse? Well, if you're a young man, I wrote this for you. 
you got to look for a Proverbs 31 woman. You should look for a woman who honors God. God's already told you what to look for. And, and because you worship him and you trust his plan, you can go out and you can find that woman. And you can refer back to Proverbs 31, 10, and 12, 10 through 12 is pretty good. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. And if you're a young woman looking for a man, how do you find him? Well, you need to find one that leads well, that loves the Lord, that you can respect. But then what do you do once you're married? Well, without Christ, it's kind of a free-for-all. You kind of do what you want, and then you can probably fight about it because you both want to do what you want because it's like a competition, not necessarily a cooperation, and then you can weaponize things like sex, and then the marriage can become a battleground. It, it's no surprise, but it's so sad to me, and I used to participate in this, that there's so much humor that is spent degrading marriage and families. Ugh, wife, ball and chain, dragging me down, can't do anything that I like to do. Or, or the men with the kids, oh, kids, they're holding me down. Can't do all those fun single guy things like sit in dirty bars. <laughs> so dumb. Because <laughs> these kids. Right? It's insane. I, I know I've commented to you that the, the little shop in Georgetown had these coffee mugs that were just like, it was so gross about divorce and like the ball and chain of the wife. But you can see, without faith and feelings-based, it seeps over into everything else. But what happens, if, what happens if you know the Lord? Well, He tells you what to do. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. He's the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body, family. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's clear. I told you how to family. Men are to love their wives. Women are to respect their husbands. There's many issues with sex and marriages. Why? Well, when we fail to bend the knee to Christ, we, we have problems. But, the, but then Paul gives us clear direction. So when we're in faith, we have, we have a path. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5, the husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so Satan may not tempt you because you have your lack of self-control. It's clear. When you're in faith, there's a pathway. It's not rigid. It's not legalistic. It's like a guardrail on either side. We're just talking about Trail Ridge Road. We're talking about Trail Ridge Road. Was that a little terrifying? You're like, I don't know if the end of the car is. 
Trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord. <laughs> Trail Ridge Road would be a little nicer if there was a guardrail on the side. We have guard... There is now? Oh, there's lots more guardrails now. That's good. But we have guardrails. We have boundaries. And within those boundaries, we get to exercise freedom. It's beautiful. But what about raising kids? Well, if you don't know God, how will you raise your kids? Well, there's lots of Dr. Spock books. Not the guy from Star Trek, I don't think. And now in 2023, I hesitate to tell you that I even Googled this. This is horrid. There is gender-neutral parenting. That's the thing. Don't Google it. It'll hurt your brain. But if you're in Christ, just clear direction on how to raise your children. Because God gave you a roadmap. Train a child up, Proverbs 22, 6. Train a child up in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. And well, how do we know how to train him? Well, Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So it begins with the fear of the Lord. It always comes back to that. It always comes back to God as the priority, doesn't it? It's really amazing. Christ has to be our highest priority because he is Lord over all. Christ is Lord over everything. But what, what that means is that he can redeem everything. He makes all things new. It wasn't like he makes half of the things new. Makes all things new. And families, all families need redemption. And Christ can bring that redemption because families sin. And even Christian families have difficult times. Fact. Being Christian and following Christ does not mean your family will not have struggle. But it gives you a pathway and a roadmap and a savior and redemption and forgiveness and a way to deal with sin and Satan and difficulties in life. Because we all need redemption, family. Every single one of us needs redemption. And that's actually what Jesus is telling his mother and brothers and those with him and us and the people that come after us, <laughs> the people that come after them. We all need redemption. We can't do this alone. We can't do this without him. And we can't do anything without acknowledging who our good father and our real father is. We, we have to acknowledge that, uh, that He is our Father before we can father or wife or mother or husband or kid or any of those things. We have to know about our family in Christ so that we can take it to our blood families and the world here. And it's, it's what binds us together. It's what binds us together here as a family. And it actually has to be. Because that's how we deal with problems and strife and it, things like that. Because those things happen, right? But if we don't put Christ as our priority, everything else in life falls apart. If we don't understand Christ's redemptive power in our lives, His grace in our lives, His mercy in our lives, how are we ever going to give grace and mercy and forgiveness to others? And do you know who needs grace, mercy, and forgiveness? The people you live with. easy to get frustrated with the people we live with because we live with them and we know they're I know your families nobody in any of your families has annoying habits we know each other's annoying habits why can't you just put the toilet seat lid down I've asked you 4,264 times I pointed that way but nobody in my family actually leaves the toilet seat lid up I was trying to use something that wasn't a family thing that we get persnickety about but but there's those things right we know those things, and we don't always give each other the grace that we need. But when Christ is the head, it's the reminder to execute and give the grace that He gives us. Because if we don't, 
We perpetuate the brokenness of the world that we're in now. And that's what Satan actually wants. He wants fruitlessness. He wants people to turn to their own desires. I mean, James even says it in James 1.14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. If you don't have Jesus, all you have is your own desires. If you don't have Jesus, it's all about you. Or, or whatever the other thing that you've put in Jesus' place. Your, your sports, or your hobbies, or your job, or your bank account, or whatever. But the only way, the only way to redeem the family, to repair the family, repair the world, is through faith in Jesus. And I mean that. And there's so much hope. It's not hope in the family. It's hope for the family, the redeemed family, the family that forgives and loves and confesses and repents and then forgives some more. That's a family that can lead. That's a family that's, that's training up a child in the way that they should go. That's a family that goes out and actually changes the world. Think about it. Think about if, if, if more families were, were forgiving and merciful and gracious and loving their neighbors and loving their enemies and teaching it to their children. Think about how that fights against Satan. The family that stands firm, that refuses to sway, that glorifies God and all that they do. Man, it's so good. But here's the beautiful thing. This isn't like some secret club. You don't have to get your tithe card or know the secret handshake or some Gnostic knowledge. This is an open invitation. The door is open. It is an open invitation to join God's family. If you don't know Jesus deeply, you should pray to Him to work in your heart, to bring you deep into His family, to guide you in faith, because that's all it takes is faith in Christ. Faith sets the world right. I'm so incredibly grateful that you are all my brothers and sisters, that we share this, this common father, the best father in the whole world, the one that's united us. You, you, you all have changed my life. I don't think I read the, the Edith Schaefer quote last week. I'm going to read it now because this is how I think God, God really has worked in our world here, like in, in things that you just, you know, places that you don't ever expect to be, people you don't ever expect to meet, these things that really change your life, and it's through, through God. And Edith Schaefer says this, she said, the thing about real life is that important events don't announce themselves. Trumpets don't blow, drums don't beat to let you know that you're going to meet the most important person you've ever met, or read the most important thing you're ever going to read, or have the most important conversation you're ever going to have, or spend the most important week you're ever going to spend. Usually something that is going to change your whole life as a memory before you can stop and be impressed about it. You don't usually have a chance to get excited about that sort of thing ahead of time, but God reveals it to you through redemption later. It's why I'm so grateful that you are my brothers and sisters. I had no idea. I had no idea. I had no idea it could be this rich. I had no idea that you could live all of Christ for all of life and, and experience joy even in times of incredible difficulty. No idea. We have the best father in the whole world. We have the best family in the whole world. We have a father who unites us, who forgives us, who draws us to himself, who makes us brothers and sisters. When he's our priority, we then get to go take that out into the world, the people we work with, the people we love, whether they believe in Jesus or not. We get to live that out as being a member of God's family. May all the glory be to him forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly grateful 
for this family here. Lord, we ask you to bless us and strengthen us and unite us and lift us up in joy. Enjoy, Lord, despite difficulties. Allow us to grow together, to confess and forgive and reconcile, to draw closer to each other because you draw us close to you. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son to unite us to you, for accepting us, for loving us. All these things we pray in your mighty, mighty name. Amen.